Hey super friends, it's Neil and Martin, and welcome to another episode of the Get Your Comic Con podcast. Say hello, Martin. Hello, Martin. That's definitely becoming a tradition. This week we're going to be chatting to you about a couple of movies, a couple of comic books, and some TV. So what have we got for the for the listeners at home this week, Martin? So this week we're going to be talking about Dark Phoenix, then segueing into a bit of Heroes in Crisis. We're going to bring it back into the world of live action and delve into the deep, murky depths of Swamp Thing. We will then take it back into the printed page and have a look at The Last Night and then finish off with a bit of Brightburn. Okay, cool. So, kicking things off, we're going to talk about Dark Phoenix, uh, which is called X-Men Dark Phoenix, if you're not in America, because apparently people outside of America don't understand an X-Men movie without X-Men in the title. Before we get down to business on this one, have a little listen to one of the movie's trailers. You think you can fix me? Dream, you are not broken. This is the end, beautiful friend. The mind is a fragile thing. It takes only the slightest tap to tip it in the wrong direction. This is the end. Charles, what did you do? I had to keep her stable. I protected her. From the truth? There's another word for that. I came looking for answers. You feel like you don't belong here. You don't. They can't begin to comprehend what you are. She's changing. And what? You didn't come here looking for answers. You came here looking for permission. Jean. She's all rage. Pain. And it's all coming out of us. Jean lost control. But she's still our friend. This is your fault, Charles. The world is on the brink. I'm sorry. I didn't stop it sooner. You're always sorry, Charles. And there's always a speech. And nobody cares. There's still hope. Don't do this. They're right to fear me. I've seen evil. I'm looking at it now. The synopsis for X-Men Dark Phoenix reads, In Dark Phoenix, the X-Men face their most formidable and powerful foe, one of their own, Jean Grey. During a rescue mission in space, Jean is nearly killed when she is hit by a mysterious cosmic force. Once she returns home, this force not only makes her infinitely more powerful, but far more unstable. Wrestling with this entity inside her, Jean unleashes her powers in ways she can neither comprehend nor contain. With Jean spiralling out of control and hunting the one she loves most, she begins to unravel the very fabric that holds the X-Men together. Now with this family falling apart, they must find a way to unite, not only to save Jean's soul, but to save our very planet from aliens who wish to weaponise this force and rule the galaxy. To Dark Phoenix stars Sophie Turner as Jean Grey, James McAvoy as Professor Xavier, Michael Fassbender as Magneto, briefly Jennifer Lawrence as Mystique, 
Nicholas Holt returns as uh, Beast. You've also got Ty Sheridan, Alexandra Ship, and Cody Smith McPhee. And the villain, who doesn't really have a name, although she does kind of know, is uh, is played by Jessica Chastain. So we saw this movie last night, and I'm underwhelmed. How about you? Underwhelmed. I just, uh, as we're recording this, I just published my review, uh, which I decided to give a 5 out of 10. I was going to give it a 4, but the the movie itself is quite uh, quite melancholic, so I gave it an extra point for, for that, because I love a bit of melancholia. My verdict was that ultimately, Dark Phoenix will go down in history as a sad, underwhelming ending to the franchise. Nearly 20 years of storytelling has culminated in a well-produced, well-acted, but hollow movie. Strong performances from James McAvoy, Nicholas Holt and Sophie Turner are marred by emotionless dialogue and dull action sequences. Though never unwatchable, it's neither exciting nor satisfying. So obviously we went to the fan event for this and we saw a number of clips beforehand. How were you... What were your thoughts on Dark Phoenix prior to having seen it? So I was praying that they were keeping the really good stuff for the actual film and they were just giving us a little sneaky peek. Yep. I didn't expect them to show us all the good bits. Yep. And then the rest of it was just stuff. Yeah, so the way uh, writer-director Simon Kinberg explained this to us at the fan event that we attended in London was that they wanted to keep back the the character stuff and show us more of the action because that's something that you come to expect from an X-Men movie. And he, he explained that he felt this was a much more character-driven piece and that the bits that we weren't seeing would have a lot more depth to them, would be a lot more rooted in reality, if that's even something that you can say about an X-Men film. Uh, and that it was it would be something as a as a whole which would be more of a unique viewing experience for an audience member. So that's why they were holding those things back. I am inclined to say they were holding those things back because they were quite dull. They may as well have just shown us the whole film. Because all the good bits we saw and then the rest of it was just really, really, really dull. I wouldn't even call it character development. It was just dull. I don't know. I, I so like I said in my review, I think it was I think it was well acted, and I think it was well made, and I think he understands the characters, apart from Phoenix. Uh, but what he did was remake the Last Stand, albeit from my perspective slightly better. And Last Stand does not tell the story of the Phoenix on the comic books or. The, the cartoons that did it quite closely, it told a story about a member of the X-Men going bad, and then this movie told the story of an X-Men going bad through addiction. This was only slightly different. If you think about what Famke Jansen did in The Last Stand, she, the walls that Professor Xavier had put up in her mind came down, and she just became evil, and dusted everyone. You know, she dusted Professor Xavier in the house and she was just bad and I mean that as in evil not as in bad like badly acted whereas in this version she got hit with the cosmic force that's never called the phoenix force she had a high because she was all whoa I feel amazing everything's dialed up to an 11 and then she came down and was kind of addicted to how she felt so she was then 
just sort of kind of like an addict to how she was feeling, but not very well put across. You saw the high, and then you saw her sitting in the street in the rain, like scratching away at herself like she was on some kind of come down. And then from there, she was just sort of evil because whatever was inside of her was enjoying the feelings. I didn't get any of that. Okay. I just saw her as a... I wouldn't really... I suppose she had the the high. And then the rest of it was just her not being able to control what was inside of her. Yeah, so I took that to be uncontrollable, like, cravings and urges to act out and to feel what it was that she was feeling. But I just took it as she had lots of rage and the rage was coming out. Not the urge to get the high, but the urge to release all the trauma that had been locked in the box, that had been cracked open. Because the whole idea of the phoenix in the comic books is that when it first starts out, it's a pure being, which is when she wears the green costume. And that is a good version of the phoenix that helps and is a, a symbol of hope. And then when she discovers darker feelings within herself she becomes addicted to them and and falls into becoming the dark phoenix and that's when the the costume becomes red and she turns evil the whole point is supposed to be an analogy for addiction and and that kind of fall and how it can make you act and it seems like simon kimberg vaguely understands it but he understands it from an emotional point of view and not from a physical point of view so you don't get the costume you don't get some of the backstory for whatever reason but he seems to understand the emotions of it, albeit it may not have come across as well as it should have, but he seems to at least understand the emotions, but not quite how it's supposed to come across. I think if you were to take away the fact that the comic book exists, if this was a whole new story, it would be something that people would think of completely differently. It still wouldn't necessarily be a great movie, but I think people would look at it differently if it wasn't trying to adapt something from the comic books that people love and revere so much. It's probably the most famous x-men story arc so if you're going to adapt something that is that high profile you should adapt it more directly rather than take very minor influence from it and change a hell of a lot of it which was the problem with last stand yeah i mean he repeats most of the same problems just in different ways it almost felt like it was exactly the same story some of the scenes felt exactly the same um some of it is scrub the mutant cure because that wasn't in this but things like uh, going back to her parents' house. That happened. That's where she killed Professor X in the last stand. Was it the same house? No. It felt like the same street. No. Totally different. It was a much denser street in the old one. Similar sort of layout, but uh, it was much denser. This one felt more like it was a purpose-built street on a back lot somewhere. Similarly, the last stand took place outside the factory where they were making the mutant cure. This one happened in another sort of wasteland-type area, so there were some similar scenarios. Same, almost a similar costume as well, in that she was just wearing a red jacket rather than a phoenix costume. So what were your thoughts on watching it then? That was quite a detailed answer to how did you feel before you saw it. Oh, watching it, I was just thinking, when is when's something going to happen? What were your highlight moments? Did you have any at all? No. I just constantly wanted more. Yeah. I wanted something to happen. Well, that's no, fair something never it never really happened. I mean things happened, they just weren't very lively. 
even the fight scenes happened and I was like, oh, is that it? I enjoyed the I enjoyed the space sequence at the beginning. I think I said this when we talked about the fan event, but I enjoyed the space sequence because you got to see them functioning as a team more than we've ever seen them functioning as a team before in film. I still think it's relatively paint by numbers in that Mystique's your defined leader, Scott do this, Nightcrawler do this, Quicksilver do this. It's still not particularly inspired, but I think it's one of the better sequences in the film. It was a very good opening, I'll give you that. But after that, it just sort of went downhill very quickly. How did you feel about the basketball sequence? I still can't see dodgy CGI that you see. Oh, it was alright. I mean, it's still not the best basketball course in the world, but you know. I don't really understand what you thought was CGI, though, because it was a real location. It must have just been the doors opening that was CGI. Yeah, it was the doors that were opening. I don't know. I'm going to have to watch it again, because I just didn't see it. I also don't mind the train sequence towards the end. I thought that was acted fairly well. It's a very claustrophobic fight sequence, but I still thought it was quite well done. Yeah, I mean, it's a very generic fight scene. It was very good. And that was the section that was supposedly added in later as part of the reshoots. Thank God. Well, we don't know what was coming before it. It could have been quite good. Supposedly, uh, there's two different rumours. One that it was set in space and one that it was set in the White House, I think. What made me laugh was the uh, the MCU patches on the soldiers' arms. So are we saying that the mutants were captured by the MCU? That a little third act reshoot analogy for what was happening in real life by that stage, by any chance? It's very clever if it was. I think the highlight moments for me were definitely those two fight sequences. So space, I, I, I very much enjoyed space just because it was nice to see what potentially could have been a very high-functioning X-Men team movie. Similarly, although they weren't in costume in that last sequence, it was a shame the costumes disappeared so early. It was good to see them fighting together as a team. And interesting to see Magneto almost part of the team towards the end there as well, kind of fighting alongside them. But it's tough to say that that wasn't also really frustrating because that was a sign of a movie that was lurking underneath that could have been a lot better than what we got overall. I would agree. What did you think of this mysterious villain played by Jessica Chastain? It all was... It all amounted to sort of nothing in the end. Well, it didn't, it, it didn't mean anything, did it? it was, she was just there and they were there and then that was it. Yeah. So the Dabari are from the comics, but they're a very, very, like... Z-list sort of character base from the movie and uh, Vok or Volk, I'm not quite sure how, how they pronounced it because I think she was only called it maybe twice in the movie, is a it's actually male in the comic book so that was a gender swap character but that didn't I didn't feel like anything there was no big reveal that she was something from the comic books and then she was there and she existed but to be honest she really only existed to expose parts of the story for us yeah, and there, she was only they were only there for the, the fight at the end, and then that was it. She just did that. I mean, she let everyone else do the fighting, and she stood on a railway bridge, and then in a really dodgy moment of CGI, she flopped over the bridge onto the train and didn't do very much. But having said that, I did really like the shot of Magneto wielding like a hundred guns in her sort of general direction. That was an interesting image, at least. Yeah, that was cool. That was well done. Her, uh, her sort of stoic portrayal was a I don't want to call it wooden 
it was very cold and it was very clinical and very sterile and she didn't there wasn't really anything to her I get that she was an alien so she wasn't exactly supposed to be emotional but she didn't I don't know I just I didn't I didn't dislike her but I didn't get anything from her because she was just so straight laced which is a shame really because I could have done so much more with the actual comic story and the space and all the other aliens and stuff Having the Shi'ar Empire and Lalandra and the others in there would have been much better to have gone much closer to the comic book origin. I know Kinberg said that he took some of that stuff out because he wanted the movie to focus on Jean and Jean's story. But I wouldn't have even said that she earned being a main character in the movie. She wasn't She wasn't in every scene. She didn't carry the movie at all. It was carried by Beast to a degree. Uh, and Charles. Charles shouldered the brunt of the movie again. Yeah, she was, again. There wasn't really a huge of huge amount of character development around her either. It's, it was barely a Phoenix movie in that respect. What do you think about Jennifer Lawrence in this one? Oh, bless her! She just did not want to be there, did she? No. I'd, so I said this in my review. Um, I hate to say what, that someone is phoning in a performance because I don't ever feel like I've ever seen anyone truly doing that. I mean, people said that they felt Ben Affleck was phoning it in Injustice League, and I disagree with that completely. It was just the way the character was portrayed, as far as I'm concerned. And I think in this movie, her standoffishness, I guess, that some people think of as her not wanting to be there and her phoning it in, is maybe just poor direction of the character disagreeing with absolutely everything that Charles was doing because that was what that was all she existed for in her handful of scenes was to disagree with Charles she didn't want to go to space when they got back from space she wasn't happy that they'd been to space she then went into well she had that scene with beast where she wanted to leave very generic let's run away and go elsewhere meaning that later on after she died he could do the whole she was going to leave and i convinced her to stay and now she's dead moment and then she went into Cerebro and all we really saw her do in there was look a bit, whoa, what's going on? And then when it all went wrong, her do the Charles sort of scream and rip his helmet off. And then before you knew it, she was dead. Which again is a real shame because she's been such a big character from the word go in this franchise. To Could, then have such a... to limp out almost. Would it be uh, safe to say that in the first class through to Dark Phoenix series of films, she might have given you some of your favourite moments. Why have you enjoyed her character? I just quite enjoyed it. I, I quite like her as an actress. Um, oh yeah, she's there's a lot to like about her as an actress. She's she's awesome. And so funny. I can watch videos on YouTube of her laughing at herself for hours on end. I quite like the ambiguousness of her character. So look, she can be good, she can be bad, she can go either way. She's with Charles, she's with... Eric. Eric. Um, she's not, you know, she kind of, she's got her own agenda. And I quite like that. You never know what she'll do. A lot of people seem to have picked up on her ex-women line as if it feels really forced. And I'd read a lot beforehand about it being uh, shoehorned into the movie. But then I realised it was actually part of the clips that we saw beforehand because it's at the end of the space sequence. And I get it. People don't like that it's still called X-Men when there are so many female characters. But there's a history and a legacy to it. And it it doesn't, it didn't feel like a forced line to me. It, it feels unnecessary, but I don't think it felt forced in there for the sake of making a point of it. I quite liked it. She makes a good point. It's a very female-heavy... The women team. are always saving the men around here. And they are. 
Low points for me were easily her death scene. Um, I don't... To have given away so early in the marketing for the movie that she was going to die, it then feels entirely pointless that that scene would focus on her face when she hit the fence and not reveal the fact that she'd been mortally wounded until nearly a minute later. Why have a sequence which is supposed to build tension while you kind of think, oh, something's wrong here, and don't know it until you see it, when you've said beforehand, by the way, this character's going to die. Because we go into that scene with no tension, because we know what's going to happen. So then why take time to then pull back on the camera and show what was an impressive amount of gore for this kind of movie, actually? It was, actually. You don't really see a lot of that in these types of films. No. That was that was impressive. Um, quite a lot of blood going on there. I just, I don't understand what that movie was... Con- what that movie... I just don't understand what that scene was constructed in that way for because we knew what was going to happen. Very, It felt very weird. The marketing then felt at odds with what we were seeing in the film. I think other low point for me is just how unimaginative it then felt. Like Again, like I said in my review, it's not bad. It's not poorly acted on the most part. It's not badly made. The CGI is okay. I liked Hans Zimmer's music, but it's just hollow, a bit dull. lacking in uh, lacking in some substance, and that was really frustrating to see, particularly for a franchise that you've been invested in for you know eighteen, nineteen, nearly twenty years, and for this to be the way it ended, it wasn't a it wasn't a series finale to be proud of. No, you would have hoped it would have went. They've known it's the last film. They know that the horrible MCU is going to come and get them, um, so they would make almost like a last stand of it and can I throw everything at it yeah see the last stand I feel like they threw everything at that and just hoped that things would stick this time I don't feel like they threw anything at it they just made a movie and put it out but it does get a bonus point from me for being melancholic I did enjoy it you know I love a depressing movie it was very melancholic being uh, being score aficionados as we are in this family, uh, what did you think of Hans Zimmer's music? The best thing about the film. I actually think I would probably agree. During that sequence at the beginning, where they're where they're going up to space, I think that music's really quite striking. It's quite it's quite hopeful for a music for a movie that doesn't have um, Hope. particularly hopeful tone to it. I definitely got a few hints of uh, Inception and Interstellar in there as well. There was some of that electronic groaning and churning that he puts in those movies alongside his more sort of uh, straightforward orchestral score as well. I'm sure at one point I heard a tiny little um, callback to the the piano tune Hope from Days of Future Past as well. The little piano tune that plays around Charles when he meets himself and is talking to his older self. There was a particular piece of music called Hope that I enjoyed from that score um, which seemed to have a tiny little callback moment. I've not listened to the album for this one yet to, to verify my... Uh, my thoughts on that one, but I'm sure I picked it up. He's probably snuck it in there in an old hands. I was missing the theme tune, though, and I don't mean the cartoon theme tune. I mean the movie theme tune that's been in the original trilogy and then kind of went away and came back. It is normally associated with the Brian Singer films, which maybe they were trying to step away from, given everything that's gone on with him. But it would have been nice, again, as the last movie in the franchise to have had that that theme tune, just because it's very, it's very iconic in that it is X-Men. Yeah, we'd have just sort of tied everything together. Bit nostalgia. Yeah, this I didn't feel like this tied into anything, really. Also, the 1992 setting seemed almost pointless. 
apart from the the space mission at the beginning and that tying in to I presume a real space mission from 1992 there was no reason for that setting nothing about this movie was 90s no they just sort of it was it was just 1992 when you think that First Class was against the backdrop of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and then uh, Days of Future Past, you had the you know the, all the stuff with the president that was going on there that tied it very much to the time period, and then you had um, in Apocalypse, the style, they were very 80s styled in terms of their costumes, and they went to the mall and they did things that were very typically 80s. This one didn't do anything to to kind of ham up its, its time period at all. It could have been today for all, for all we knew. Did you not find the 90s very melancholic? To be fair, at this point, I was only seven years old. Fair enough. <laughs> you were three. Do you remember being very melancholic when you were three? Um, not really. I think I was a happy child. I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. Uh, so what would you give this movie out of ten? What would be your, your final score for Dark Phoenix? Mm, three. And a half. <laughs> okay, why the half? Just because it had a really good score, and they were trying really hard. They were, they were trying. Well, at least some of them were were trying. At least. All right, so I gave this movie a five out of ten. You can check out my review on the website now. And X Men Dark Phoenix is in cinemas pretty much globally. I don't think there's many places left for it to release at this exact point in time while we are recording. We are about to get the box office results for its opening weekend. Things are, uh, to put it mildly, not looking good. <laughs> In fact, as I'm talking to you now, the weekend estimates have hit and it made an estimated $33 million in America, where going into the weekend it was looking at 50 to 60. So it's nearly halved its estimates, making it easily the lowest opening for all of the X Men franchise, unfortunately. Oh dear. Onwards and upwards, here's to the X-Men in the Marvel Cinematic Universe sometime in the next five years. Oh god, I don't... It needs to be rested. That's a... Oh, they're not happening anytime soon. Kevin Feige said it's not happening anytime soon. They want to bring them in when they have time to bring them in. We'll we'll just hope that that is something that... uh, that works for the franchise and is something maybe a bit closer to the comics and something that fans can really sick their teeth into and enjoy because this is this is a this is a chore to watch and that's that is a crying shame. But from there, we will move on, and we're going to talk about Heroes in Crisis number nine, um, perhaps an equally controversial series just in print form rather than uh, rather than live action movie form. Heroes in Crisis number nine is the culmination of what has been a, a fairly long journey uh, from writer Tom King and artist Clay Mann. The synopsis for this very issue, the final in the Heroes in Crisis run, reads... The most talked about miniseries of the year reaches its stunning finale. The mystery behind the murders at Sanctuary is solved, but the mind behind it is one the heroes never expected. With their deepest secrets exposed, the Trinity has to consider how to carry on Should the tragedy cause them to redouble their efforts to help their hurting comrades, or will they need to close up shop? The answers will be found in the ashes of this final showdown, and the fates of Booster Gold, Harley Quinn, and the rest hang in the balance. So Heroes in Crisis number 9 is written by Tom King, pencils and inks by Clay Mann, colours by Tom Rue Murray, with a cover by Clay Mann and Tom Rue Murray. 
you can pick up this issue now. It's in print and it's also available on Comixology in digital. Here we are. The end of Heroes in Crisis. I, I, I don't know where to start with this one. What were, what were your thoughts? How much have you enjoyed this series overall? I've quite enjoyed it. I think I enjoyed it more to start with and then I've sort of feigned interest in the middle. And then at the end, it kind of piqued my interest a bit more again. I would agree. I really, really enjoyed this series when it first started, and some of the initial issues I gave a really high score in my reviews, but I definitely tailed off in sort of 6, 7, 8. And then the reveal of who the killer is, although a completely WTF sort of moment, has at least piqued my interest for the for the last issue. I still don't know quite how I feel about it, having been Wally, though. There's an important storyline that sort of brings more attention to mental health in general and it kind of wraps it up in a nice superhero banner. I would agree. I mean, that's what Tom King said he was setting out to do from the start, was to tell a story that looked at the mental health implications that being a vigilante and a superhero would have on these characters. I agree with some people that that message feels like it got a bit lost in the middle, certainly with the uh, the, the murder mystery over was it Harley, was it Booster? I don't feel like that ended up being anything other than misdirection and misdirection in a story like this feels like a wasted opportunity to be doing something more important yeah all that wasn't it wasn't really important really i mean what was really important was wally's story that i see that i agree not that i would want it maybe to have said it was wally from the outset that could have been a completely different series if it had but they could have done away with that mystery early on to have focused more on his mental situation. What do you think about the specific uh, bit of story that this is telling in, in wrapping up the the overall arc of the series? I quite like this issue because it's essentially Wally accepting his issues and then trying to move on from them. And it's really nice that he's almost given himself a good talking to, which I often say that some people should do, go and stand in front of the mirror and have a word with themselves. Why are you looking at me when you say that? No, I'm just, just making a point. Okay. <laughs> um, but he actually gets to do that because of all the time travel. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he actually does get to talk to himself, doesn't he? That's a good point. I hadn't thought about it like that. And it's, sometimes it's quite important, really, if you're kind of... It's almost like checking in with yourself and acknowledging that you have issues yourself and how you can deal with them and move on with them, which is quite powerful. I don't, yeah, I think this issue is probably one of the more powerful, particularly since the beginning. You had that striking image at the beginning of the series with all of the, the dead bodies, and that was very much a, like, how could this happen? How could it be potentially one of their own that did this? And now you're at the flip side of that, which is, okay, we know it was one of them that did this. How could it be, how could it be Wally? Like, he was the best of us sort of situation. That's what I think some of the characters are feeling is, my God, if, you know... If Wally West, who is truly one of the most, um, you know, pure of the heroes and the most, what's the word? I don't know quite what I'm trying to say. Um, he's one of the most pure of heart of the heroes and probably one of the, you know, he's the one that's never going to turn bad. How could, how could this happen? How could it be him that did this? But he didn't, I mean, he, he didn't turn bad. He just, you know, he's had his entire life ripped away from him. And he was in a situation that, you know, he just didn't know how to deal with and things got out of control. Exactly. And that's why I was really pleased to see towards the end of the issue where uh, 
the other heroes didn't exactly sort of lock him up and throw away the key. Well, I mean, they did lock him up and throw away the key, but um, they didn't turn against him. There was a very important message, which was, yes, you have to face up to what you did, but we're not turning our back on you because you're one of us. And this could now, we realise, be any of us. Yeah, because um, he can't have been, he couldn't have stayed in the time loop where he comes back, kills himself, and goes back in time. There's a whole thing over again where he constantly lives out that horrible loop, whereas they've come in to, to stand by him and break break the loop. But you see the analogy there, because that's what Sanctuary did. Because in Sanctuary, when they were in their little holographic cells, rooms, not cells, it wasn't a prison, they were, in some cases, reliving that. So Lagoon Boy was living the moment he, his friends died over and over again. But that was their choice to relive the moments that they wanted to relive to work through them. It was, but look at what that did to Wally. Reliving his family over and over again caused the whole events of the series to happen. And then he again chose to do that to try and fix it afterwards. I am glad to see that Tom King managed to pull it back for this final issue though. I think regardless of the criticisms levelled at some of those issues in the middle, this is this is a satisfying ending to this series, would you not say? It is, and they've stuck with the consequences of losing quite a lot of characters. Yeah, they have. So, um, Roy. No more Roy. Yes, I'm very upset about that. Yeah. Red Hood and the Outlaws will never be the same again. Well, he was. he's not been an outlaw for a long time now, but it's still very sad. Yeah, and the original Titans will not be the same again, although he's not in the lineup. That's a lot of characters there that, you know, love Roy for who he is and have been impacted by him, his being alive and him not being around anymore. Is, it's going to have a pretty wide-ranging impact. Yeah, and we've seen that throughout Titans and... Green Arrow. Oliver's stepped away from being Green Arrow at the time, at, you know, at this point, and Green Arrow as a comic series has ended because he just, he's a broken man. So it'll be interesting to see if he stays gone or if he comes back. It depends. We'll have to wait for the next crisis. Interesting or... that Poison Ivy's not quite gone. Well, she's come back via the green. And would you uh, would you like to elaborate on your frustrations over Poison Ivy coming back from the green? Well, I mean, it all just depends on when this is set and where it is in continuity. Because if you have been reading... Justice League Dark, you will know that the green was well and truly destroyed. So then, in theory, if this is set after that, she shouldn't exist? Is that what I'm hearing? Um, I think so. I mean, I know Swamp Thing's still around, so I think he's the last remnants of the green. So I think, essentially, he is the green. So what, just for those of us that are slightly uninitiated, what is the green? So it's almost just like, it's the plants, it's the parliament of the trees, and it's essentially everything that Swamp Thing is. Okay. Connection of all the living trees and plants and greenery. I really need to read Swamp Thing. Just like it's another mystical force. So how do you feel about the sort of um, outcry from people on the internet that some of these characters shouldn't have been killed off or should be brought back? Uh, I mean, it was a very bold Those choice to do Those people that start it. petitions. I mean, I'm all for... A dramatic storyline, and they certainly did that. But it, again, you just don't want to undo everything just for the sake of undoing it, because then what's the point? There needs to be some consequences. If you're going to do something, then do it and stick with it. 
This is my point. And I, I have often had this argument with people online who say, you know, they're killing off characters because they don't care about them. Because I don't see it as not caring about them. I see them... So, like, Roy, for instance. I have, I've had conversations with people who said that DC have killed off Roy because they don't know what to do with him. They don't know how to write him. They don't really care about him. They don't understand that people like him and that people who are fans of him should be offended and upset by the fact that he's dead. My argument would be that that's why he's dead. Because it elicits a response from you as the reader. If they killed him off and you went, oh well, then they've not done their job right. I mean, look at, oh, if you go back to what, the first issues and you see a list of all the ones they'd killed off, half of them I was like, I don't even know who you are. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't really that bothered. But when you look at the likes of Roy and Wally and you think, oh my God, that's really sad. It's um, also interesting in this issue to see how many other people have been in Sanctuary who've not been kind of uh, focused on because they weren't in there at the time. So, like, you get that page early on where you see uh, Frankenstein, you see June, Vixen, uh, Nightwing's in there, Blue Beetle, Orphan, Supergirl, Green Lantern. Isn't this the new Sanctuary? Not the old Sanctuary. I thought it was the same Sanctuary. I, re- I-, I picked it up as this is the new Sanctuary, that they've they've reopened it. You've also got Red Hood, Martian Manhunter, Katana, Mira... Tommy Tomorrow, Mr. Terrific, Metamorpho, Detective Chimp, Zatanna. Which is really interesting because Dove is in the lineup. Yes. Damien, Dr. Light, Sideways, Aquaman, Fire, Ice, Green Lantern, Cyborg, The Question, Beast Boy, Jessica Cruz, Green Lantern, Adam Strange, Red Tornado, Spoiler, Catwoman, Captain Atom, Raven, Jim Corrigan, The Spectre's even been in there. Interesting. Well, I suppose this does this does date it because if you look at Red Hood, he's in his new costume. Yeah, good point. So it is within continuity. It just doesn't say when. And you've got a bit of detective champion. You've got Zatanna in her top hat. Your next cosplay, I might add. No, I I've not got the legs. Um, but like I said, Dove Dove's interesting because Dove and Hawk. If you go back to old Titans and Titans Hunt, they were actually dead. So now they're back, which is exciting. Do you think that's down to the success of the show? It could be. I think they've just snuck them back in and be like, oh, they're really popular. Bring them back. Like you say, though, I hope that the consequences stay with this for a while. I don't want Roy to just be alive again. There there has to be consequences. Again, like you said, there has to be consequences to it. And I hope that they stick with that for a while. If they've... If they've learned from anything recently, they'll learn that there'll be backlash, but it's worth sticking with. I mean, I, for one, criticise Rick Grayson quite a lot for where the Nightwing series is right now. But it's because I miss Dick Grayson and I miss Nightwing. It's not because I think it's badly written. I just think I miss my character and I feel like we're still slightly holding on to him and not fully saying goodbye to him yet. And that's what frustrates me about it. Whereas consequences, I'm, I'm all good with consequences. And that's quite a big consequence to be shot in the head, because, you know, you don't just come back from that. Unless you're the Penguin, but that's another storyline that we won't get into. Yes, you're quite frustrated by that one, aren't you? (laughs) Okay, so I think my highlight moment in this one is some of those full splash pages, particularly with the two Wallies kind of facing off against each other and having that heart-to-heart. What's your highlight? 
Yep, everything with the Wallies and the team coming together and that scene where it says, you're not alone. I quite like that. Absolutely. It's nice to see Barbara involved in something a little bit bigger in the universe as well because she's quite often left out of stuff like this. She's not often in a in a sort of big crossover sense unless it's confined to the pages of the Bat books. It's nice to see her break out of just Batman a little bit. What would you give this out of 10? I think I'd say probably an 8. Quite high. I would agree. I think an 8 out of 10 for this. Any final thoughts before we move on? No, just a really good, a really nice storyline that makes you think about things slightly differently and again raises awareness of all mental health issues. Yeah, yep, I agree. So Heroes in Crisis number 9 is available in all comic book stores now, or <laughs> as I like to say in my reviews, available where all good comics are sold. Go pick this one up. There'll be also be the usual uh, trade paperback of the complete series that will be available soon as well. It's definitely... It's it's controversial, but it's worth it's well worth a read. And what crisis has not been controversial? To be fair, I can't think of any crisis that's uh, gone down perfectly well with the entire audience. Oh, you'll never please everybody, will you? Nope. Time to go back to the swamp for episode two of Swamp Thing, which is called Worlds Apart. I can't play a trailer for this one because there actually wasn't one. Oh, was there not? No, there was no promo for episode two. Oh, we can give you a synopsis though. We can give you a synopsis. Abby and Matt follow one of her patients into the swamp where Abby encounters Swamp Thing. Alex struggles to understand his metamorphosis into the monstrous plant-based creature Swamp Thing. That's quite spoilery. It's quite a quick transformation, to be fair. Well, yeah, he plopped into the swamp at the end of the pilot and came out of the swamp as Swamp Thing by the end. It was very quick, yeah. He's not in this episode as much, though. No, you don't really see a lot of the Swamp Thing, do you? I mean, he doesn't have any lines, he doesn't really speak, he's just sort of there. This episode does exactly what I would expect a second episode to do and spends most of its time fleshing out the world around it. The pilot introduces you to everything and gives you a flavour of the series and then this goes around and sets up all those supporting players that will be around for the uh, remaining eight episodes, shall we say. But it's very exciting, especially if you're a Justice League dark geek, as am I, because we get to see quite a lot of different characters, which are yes, very exciting. You, uh, you were on the edge of your seat for most of this one because of um, what was going on there and who you were seeing. You were giving me a sort of blow-by-blow account of who was who. So we got a bit of Madame Xanadu. Which I spoiled last week you in did our uh, review, which I'm very sorry about, forgetting that you hadn't seen this episode yet. Followed by you singing Xanadu at me for the rest of the week. I know that one word. You're still singing it though. Moving swiftly on. Um, so yeah, you had uh, Madame Xanadu. Who else did you see this week? So we had Blue Devil this week. It was very exciting. Oh yeah, I was going to call him Blue Beetle for a minute there. Yeah, Blue Devil. So he's featuring quite heavily in Justice League Dark at the minute. That's interesting. Tell me a bit more about him. So you, you, I get that he's an actor. Um, does he turn into a devil or what? What's the devil aspect, or is it just a name? So he's an actor, and he was playing the part of the Blue Devil, and yeah. I think something, I can't remember exactly, but something mystical happened, and he then became the character. So he doesn't, he's not like a like a true demon as such, he just gets turned into his demon character and is stuck that way forever. Alright, okay. The, the, some behind-the-scenes footage that came out definitely showed him holding a mask of a Blue Devil. Yeah, because there was the poster in his office that was him as the Blue Devil as, as an actor acting out the film. There certainly was. What did you think of Madame Xanadu? 
Well, we didn't name her, did we? No, she wasn't. She wasn't named per se, but that is who she is. Yeah, but she had her tarot cards and she was doing the whole seer thing, which was interesting. So it was a nice introduction to her. We were also introduced to Jason Woodrue this week, played by Kevin Durand, who I always think of as Joshua, the dog man from Dark Angel season two. Do we need to do this again? Where do we know Jason Woodrue from? From Batman and Robin. We remembers this week, Super Friends. He remembers. Very interesting character. So I would presume that you maybe know more about him than me if you've read more of Swamp Thing and that area of the world, because he turns up in that quite a bit, does he not? Yeah, I've not come across him in anything I've ever written recently. Okay. Uh, he definitely came across as very arrogant and narcissistic in that first scene where he got out of the car. I'm going to guess that he has something to do with what's obviously in the swamp. We've basically said he invented the weird mutagen that's in the swamp, and he's not very happy with what Avery Sutherland's done with it. I guess what we're saying is that he created that for the Sutherland Company. They then experimented with it and brought in Alec Holland to look at what happened, what the consequences of that were. So why he's not been there physically until now, Jason, that is, will be interesting to find out. So there was that scene where he said, oh, this mute gym is supposed to make the trees grow bigger, therefore they would suck up the swamp water and there would be more land for them to develop on. So that's obviously what he was going for. But clearly it's all gone a bit wrong and it's not made them bigger, it's made them crazy mutant trees. Which is sad really because the, what did you just call them of? The, the Court of Trees? Parliament of Trees. That's the one, Parliament of Trees. They'd created props for them to appear in one of the last three episodes that they're now not making. Oh no. There's been a couple of pictures online of the of, of prop trees with kind of faces and stuff in them that were, were going to be the Parliament of Trees that were planned for sort of episode 12, 13. Oh, that's a shame because they're deep in the green. So that means you'd have to go into the green to see the Parliament of Trees. Oh. That would have been exciting because then it kind of develops his character a bit more from coming away from the shell of the swamp thing and then going into the into the earth and into the green. This episode doesn't give away whether Alec is still alive or whether the swamp thing is Alec. So I'm although that to be fair, that um synopsis you know basically says, you know, he is struggling with his transformation. But I'm still inclined to think that there's a body of Alec out there in the swamp somewhere that's not necessarily dead. Um, it depends. Well, I suppose it depends on the swamp thing, because certainly the one of the swamp things, uh, the body of Alex is inside the husk. Yep. And he carries that around with him, almost like sentimentally. Oh, so you did see him tear off some of his skin in this one, and there was something underneath, but you couldn't really see what because it was so dark. So unless he's sort of in the husk, or is he a clone? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see, or we may never know. Well, we may never know, and we're obviously alluding to the fact that the series has been cancelled. Um, if you've been reading the news this week, you'll know that this is the biggest story that's kind of been going on in the world of, uh, of well, certainly comic book TV, if not comic books in general this week, that DC Universe has taken the decision that it won't be making any more episodes of Swamp Thing after the initial 10-episode run. What we're hearing is that the North Carolina Council government... Um, had projected a 40 million tax break for for the series to produce but that uh, they were unable to follow that through something to do with an accounting error is what's being reported locally that they were actually only able to uh, to give a tax break of around 12 to 14 million and the series was costing a, a, around 80 million to produce so nearly half the budget was gone on what would have been the initial tax break 
and that that subsequently means that they can't pick production back up because they don't want to move it elsewhere and change what's been laid in the groundwork because it's such a unique setting and they can't afford as a small fledgling platform to be able to continue the series. Though the latest on that is supposedly, though at the moment this I think is baseless, that the North Carolina Council has now denied that that is the case and counter-arguing that Warner Brothers knew how much they were getting and overspent and demanded more money that they couldn't then give. But ours is not to reason why on this one. Well, I mean, they're not both. I mean, they're both going to be like, "Oh, well, you said, and then well, they said." Well, exactly. Nobody's going to own up to it now. And North Carolina don't want to have like a massive exodus on tourism because they've upset all the fanboys of the world. The most important thing is that uh, whenever something like this happens, people will immediately say that the DC Universe app and streaming service is done for, that it's being taken down, that Doom Patrol won't get another series, that Titans will shut down production and will never get to see the episodes that they filmed for season two, and it's all terrible and no one's watching it and that it's done for. The the head of the community for DC Universe put out a statement saying that they couldn't elaborate on why Swamp Thing wasn't continuing, but it wouldn't be that they were committed to showing the rest of the, the other eight episodes that were due to come out, and that there is a commitment to continuing with original programming and expanding the service. At this point in time, DC Universe is not going anywhere. I said this on Twitter myself, which is that we will not report any of the baseless rumours that it's being stripped, if it's suddenly announced that yes, it's being absorbed into a Warner Media service, then yes, we will cover that. But I'm not in the game of covering ridiculous rumours. Of course, somebody immediately replied to me and said, well, it's true, but until someone gives me evidence of that fact, then uh, I'm afraid I will continue to report fact. Which seems very reasonable. Evidence-based is how we like these things to be. Back on the topic of this particular episode, though, I was really interested to see Maria Sutherland, which is interesting because... She's less of a character from the comics, and possibly not a character from the comics at all, uh, other than a few mentions, than Avery. We're seeing less of Avery Sutherland than we are of Maria at this point. She seems to be more interesting for the writers. Well, I suppose she's got more of a, a hook storyline, really, hasn't you? Because she's still reeling from the death of her daughter. And then we get to see some really, really creepy scenes of her holding on to the dead body in the bed. Yeah, now then. There's two scenes that feature the dead Shauna. One where Shauna of the dead. <laughs> uh, you get the one where Abby wakes up and goes to pick up her phone and the dead body grabs her hand and does the whole Abby. Sort of very cool practical effect makeup moment. And then you get the scene towards the end after Maria's been to see Madame Xanadu where she, um, she sees the body in the bedroom. Did you get the sense that that body in the bedroom was more uh, corporeal than perhaps what Abby was seeing? I don't know. I mean, it depends. I think this is sort of alluding to perhaps the main underlying storyline. Is there something going on in the swamp? I had such an urge to start singing Ghostbusters for a minute then. Is there something strange in the neighbourhood? Something strange in the swamp. So is that are we alluding to? Is there something in the rock? You know, is there something evil working oh, about? Yep. Is that what? Is that where sort of we're manifesting here? This evil spirit, because you know, Madame Xanadu freaks out, saying that there's something wrong. Yeah, she does, and then she throws Maria through the wall, nearly. Yeah. So she's what she say? There's an imbalance or something. I think she says uh, there's an imbalance in the swamp. And I know we they're kind of like, oh, is that because of Alec? Is that because he's swamp thing? Or actually, it's probably not. There's there's something wrong there anyway. Well, in the pilot episode, you when they go to that town hall meeting, someone does say, 
I can't remember who it is. Someone says, you know, there's always been something odd about this place. And uh, and Matt, the the cop that's old school friends with Abby, also says no one ever actually leaves Murray. They always come back. So there's definitely they're definitely alluding to something weird going on in the background. I just hope that we can get a better conclusion to it. Yeah, if they're not going to make any more episodes, then I really do hope that this ties it up. I think the most important thing when putting that into perspective is uh you know we're still going to cover this we're still going to talk about the episodes and this is still a really hell of a good watch at the same time i gave it nine out of ten in my review um, which you can read over on the website my review verdict was that world apart is an excellent follow-up to last week's pilot episode it fleshes out many of the series main characters temporarily shifting the focus from the missing alec holland the third act features some intense horror tinged action which is sure to please fans i gave it a nine out of ten I love the gore. You do love the gore. and I just... Oh my god, I love it. So like with last week, where I think I've watched that morgue scene over and over again, it's the bit towards the end of this episode where the guy that's chasing uh, Susie, it is Susie, isn't it? Yeah. Um, gets grabbed by the vines and ripped out of that house and then uh, quite literally ripped apart. Oh yeah, it's the sound that goes with it Oh as my well. god, I love it! It's just, ah, oh, it... I've always been a horror fan, and you don't really like horror films, so I don't get to watch them that much. So uh, to get any form of uh, slightly horror-like action in my life is quite uh, it's quite exciting. Here's hoping that there's a moment like that in every episode. As for that third act, um, how did you feel about the the, the connection between uh, between the little girl in the hospital bed and Swamp Thing? It's difficult to know who was controlling who in that scene. So you see Swamp Thing doing things like scratching the skin off his arms... And then it flashes to her in the hospital bed, pulling the IV drip out of her arm. Yeah, it was weird and interesting. So it'd be, wondering, it'd be interesting to see how that develops. Because is, it, is she got a bit of the swamp still in her with that weird virus? Is she patient zero and we just don't know yet? I would presume the dad was patient zero. But that could be a misdirection. Yeah, we don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Highlight moment for this week? All oh, the additional world characters. Yeah, this is this is a very well realized world, similar to to Doom Patrol in that respect. I think I don't think Titans did it as well. Titans did it, it did it well in in a very small, close knit respect with Hawk and Dove and Jason Todd, and then uh, what's about to call her Connor Leslie, uh, Donna Troy, and Superboy towards the end. Whereas and this this uh, this blew the world wide open pretty quickly, the world of the swamp. It blew the world of the swamp up very quickly, yeah, and the sort of the, the more darker elements of the the DC universe. Anything that you weren't particularly keen on? Any any sort of criticisms or or low light moments in this episode? Just that we may never get a conclusion to this series. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Eight weeks to go. I can't deal with another Constantine in my world. <laughs> this happens to you too often, doesn't it? It does. I get invested in a program, then you take it away. Scores out of 10? So I was a 9. I'll give this a solid 8. Yeah, I gave a 10 out of 10 to the pilot. I didn't think this quite lived up to that. It wasn't in any way a major step down. It was just that it focused in a slightly different way uh, on on the world of Swamp Thing and wasn't quite as intense as it were. You can watch Swamp Thing now via the DC Universe app. We hope that it will come to Netflix or another streaming platform internationally soon, but we don't know as yet quite what that will be but we'll let you know when it does 
on to our second comic book of the week. So for this one, we're taking a look at uh, Batman, The Last Night on Earth, number one, which is written by Scott Snyder with artwork by his good friend, Mr. Capullo. Quite excitingly for a comic book, uh, we can play the trailer first before we talk about it, because there was a trailer. Not much to hear, but I'm going to play it anyway. So the synopsis for the first issue of Batman The Last Night on Earth... Oh, sorry, it's not... I keep calling it The Last Night on Earth. It's not. It's Batman, semicolon, Last Night on Earth. Bruce Wayne wakes up in Arkham Asylum, young, sane, and he was never Batman. So begins this sprawling tale of the Dark Knight as he embarks on a quest through a devastated DC landscape, featuring a massive cast of familiar faces from the DC universe. As he tries to piece together the mystery of his past, he must unravel the cause of this terrible future and track down the unspeakable force that destroyed the world as he knew it. For the powerhouse creative team of Scott Snyder and artist Greg Capullo, the team that reinvented Batman from the emotional depths of Court of Owls to the bombastic power of Dark Knight's metal, DC Black Label is proud to present this bi-monthly three-issue miniseries, Batman Last Night on Earth. This could be the last Batman story ever told. I published my review for this one a little bit earlier in the week. I said, Batman Last Night on Earth is yet another example of Snyder and Capullo working together at their best. Possibly more metal than Dark Knight's metal, it takes the Dark Knight to all new territory. It's bleak and unforgiving, but earnest and at times heartwarming. Alfred, we're looking at you. And I gave it a 9 out of 10. Tell me about your reading experience of Last Night on Earth number one. I very much enjoyed it. It was a very different take on a very familiar character. Absolutely classic Snyder and Capullo though. The artwork is just stunning from start to finish and the story really uh, really pops is what I want to say I think on that one. Yeah it does, it's really good. I, was, I really liked it. I love the, uh, the opening sequence set in the present day. That's an investigation I'd like to see all of. So you get, uh, you get to hear Alfred and Bruce having a bit of a conversation about this investigation he's been on for roughly a year with the with the chalk marks being left and i love oh, it's really small on the page which is a shame but i love the the little patchwork of the of the chalk outline put together to show that it's batman's body yeah and the fact that his heart is on crime alley yes and then obviously he goes to crime alley and you get a very very striking image of a young boy was he jokerized no it's i think he was say. just he was just dead so and sort of rotten and formaldehyded, sort mm. of. Uh, it's a. It definitely shows that Scott Snyder has become more interested in the detective side of Batman. I would never say that any of his stories have looked away from that aspect of the character, but you can definitely see in his sort of twilight years of writing Batman, he's become very interested in the in the detective side of him. I can't remember if there's three or four chapters in this, but each one is. It pretty much ramps up very quickly. Yeah, it's great. I mean, I wouldn't say there wasn't a dull panel on the bit. No, there isn't. Um, so you go from that present day moment to seeing him wake up in the asylum, which in itself is a whole other storyline that could could take an entire issue. I loved seeing the uh, 
the classic cast of bat villains uh, being reinterpreted as as people who work in the asylum. Well, like the orderly and the nurse and yeah, and the fact that he's got a little penny and a little T Rex in his cell. Yeah, taking the time to show that amount of detail is something that I've come to expect of Snyder, but definitely have come to expect of Capullo and his artwork. But it just it helps make the story feel more real in that respect. If if he'd just woken up in the asylum and the doctor had said to him, "You'd imagined it." You would you'd rationalise it in your head and say, "Oh God, he's got you know he's quite got quite a good imagination, hasn't he?" But to see like Harley Quinn as one of the you know almost as Harley and Quinzel again back in the asylum, and that it's quite clearly the Joker who is his uh, his doctor in there helps to make you understand exactly where this version of Bruce Wayne has supposedly pulled all of these characters from in his imagination, and I think that helps that definitely helps anchor it a bit more and make it very very real and make you think uh oh has he imagined the whole thing uh, very reminiscent of a, a certain Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode I had a feeling you were going to say that yeah is it all in their mind is it all in our mind nobody knows and then obviously you jump to the future is the spinning wheel going to stop spinning who knows <laughs> the Alfred reveal was really heartbreaking I thought as well the the fact that he looked through the the young or the Alfred that he remembered and saw that it was a hologram and it was it was a much older Alfred. That was quite tragic. And that was where I thought the story got quite heartwarming as well. That even even after all those years, Alfred was still trying to look after him and still trying to give Bruce the life he deserved rather than the life he was part of. But he always comes back to being that. Always. Always. And then it just goes all Mad Max. Which is just awesome in my book. Where where do you start with that? Uh, shaven-headed Wonder Woman. Joker's head in a jar. The new Amazons. Everything's just gone a bit crazy, really. It's great. It's really nice seeing uh, this be released through Black Label because it means that Snyder can... It, I mean, it just takes the, the shackles off and he can go as crazy as he wants, really. And he quite clearly has. It's also great for the artwork as well because it just means that you can take it to some weird and wonderful places. I mean, that cover is striking enough as it is with the Batman silhouette and the little Joker head, but that that shade of pink in the background for the for the cover is maybe not necessarily something you would see on a straightforward comic book cover because this is not a straightforward comic book. And you've got the sort of end of the world, what's Mad Max style, everything's just gone a bit wrong. It's going to be interesting to see where it goes, given that this is only three bumper issues, so there's not a huge amount of time for the rest of the story to be told. Where, wh- Who do you think is behind it? Well, it's everybody, isn't it? I mean, the whole world, there's just people. There, I don't think there is a big bad, I think it is just people. Yeah? You don't think there's going to be somebody pulling the strings behind it? No, I think it's just going to be, it's probably going to be like really sad and be like, yeah, people are just bad. We do this to ourselves. That's true. It could be a very good comment on society. There's an opportunity there to do something quite gut-punching, I guess. Make it a bit more sort of... It was all your fault. Politically driven. Yeah. We can't always blame it on the the big bad. Sometimes it's just us. We are the big bad. Yeah. Who else do we get to see other than uh, Wonder Woman? Poison Ivy's in there. Yep. We get a bit of Apocalypse, we get some Lex Luthor. 
we've got a bit of Donna Troy in a very classic outfit. We've got some Supergirl. Vixen. Vixen. I forgot about Supergirl and Vixen. They're in that little female team-up, aren't they? Yeah, and it's Poison Ivy and Vixen that sort of picks Bruce and the Joker up from the... From almost like the, the outlaws. How did his head get in the jar? That's a weird one. I think we're going to have to wait and see for that one. He's probably done that himself. He's probably realised that Bruce was hidden away somewhere and he wanted to wait for him in the jar. I did get that sense from the way he was talking. He was a bit lost without Batman. But that just sums up their relationship anyway, doesn't it? I, 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 I hasten to be someone that jumps to a This is awesome! point when we've only had the first issue but I do feel like this could end up being the highlight of Capullo and Snyder's Batman it could be well let's have to wait for the next two issues there's something about the colour palette in in a book with these two that I just love as well I like that there's some very stark contrast between the different scenes so the present day stuff is very blue it's very murky and then you go to the uh, to the asylum and it's very sterile and it's very fluorescent lights very green very washed out and then you jump into the future and it gets injected with quite a lot of serious colours at that point. Who is the colourist for this? As Capullo only does the pencils. Inks are by Jonathan Glapion and the colours are by FCO Placencia. That's a name I know quite well. I think, again, that's generally a team that works with Capullo. I think he's got a nice little team that works around him. Team Capullo. Yes. Dear Mr. Capullo. I realise this is probably sounding like a very one-sided review, but it's, uh, it would be very difficult to find anything to uh, to criticise this book on, be- other than the fact that I didn't want it to end. And because it's Black Label, it doesn't really matter what happens, because it's not in continuity. And that makes it more exciting. And it's... I almost feel bad saying that, because I love reading Batman, and you know, you know my pull list. My pull list has anything bad in the title. But there's a certain safety net when you read Batman or you read detective comics because it's going to be ongoing and it's going to be ongoing for a very very long time long after I am no longer here uh, but with issues or stories like this through through imprints like Black Label you just don't know where they're going to go and that's that's very exciting anything could happen what would you give this one out of 10 then I'm going to say a solid 7 Oh, seven. I, I feel like that's actually a little bit low. I'm keeping it reserved for the next two. Okay, you're going to see how this one plays out as, yeah. a, as a full product. I gave this one a nine, and you can you can read my review over on the website now. Uh, Batman Last Night on Earth, number one, is available where all good comics are sold as we speak. We're nearly at the end of this week's podcast. There's just enough time for me to remind you that we've got a competition out at the moment. If you listened to our last podcast, our MCM Comic Con special... You will know that we're giving away a Funko Pop, a Red Wing Robin, or as we know him, uh, Red Robin. You can enter that competition now by heading over to our Twitter page, looking for the competition tweet. You just have to retweet that one. Make sure you are following us at Get Your Comic Con and use the hashtag #GeikoRedRobin. Got to be in with a chance to win it. We're going to be picking a winner for that one uh, in just over a week's time from when we're recording this. It's going to be the Tuesday. What is the Tuesday? Give me the date. We're picking a winner for that one on Tuesday the 18th of June. So you've got until Tuesday the 18th of June 2019 to enter for that one. 
That is a Red Wing Robin Funko Pop. And uh, we'll chuck in the usual Get Your Comic Con badges and stickers for our wonderful super friends. So that leads us on to our last topic today. And we're going to be talking about the new superhero horror movie Brightburn from Sony Pictures. This one stars Elizabeth Banks, David Denman. It also stars Jackson A. Dunn, Matt Jones, Meredith Hagner and Becky Wallstrom. Synopsis for Brightburn is an interesting one. You'll you'll definitely recognise this story. So if I say, what if a child from another world crash-landed on Earth, but instead of becoming a hero to mankind, he proved to be something far more sinister? Before uh, Martin questions me on this one, uh, we'll have a little listen to the trailer. Mom? Who am I? You are a gift. We believe that you came here for a reason. I know it's been difficult for you lately, that you feel different from other kids. Touch the floor, Brian! You are different. Caitlin, get my hand up. He's a creep. Help him up. I want him in handcuffs and I want him gone. Do you even know who his real mother is? I'm his real mother. Let's go. Maybe there is something wrong with Brandon. I will never turn against our son. He's not my son! in the world that knows how special I am. There are believed to be no survivors among the 268 passengers on board. No, no, no! Whatever you've done, I know there is good inside you. Brightburn is in cinemas in America now and hits the UK on June the 19th, a little bit delayed from America, uh, from Sony Pictures UK. I had the the great pleasure of going to the Sony offices in London to see this movie this week alongside our usual little crew of uh, Hulks, DC Worlds, um, aspiring Kryptonians and others. You didn't come along to this one though, did you? No, I was uh, I was busy that night. Were you? Uh, yes, yes I was, yes. So if I say the words, Martin, do you want to see a horror film? You say... No, I'm busy. Thank you. <laughs> uh, 
Do you like horror movies? No, not really, no. Would you watch a horror movie? No. Would you entertain the idea of a horror movie? No, no. Okay, so that being said, I took my friend Mark from work with me to uh, to watch this one so that you didn't have to worry about um, crying in front of a room full of grown adults watching a horror movie. I wouldn't have cried. I just wouldn't have enjoyed it. <laughs> uh, so you go, you're going to have to question me on this one. So what do you what do you think of Brightburn then? It's a very broad question. Uh, I really enjoyed it. So it's not got the it's not got the best of reviews in America, which is a shame because I actually found it really enjoyable. I don't know if that's somewhat enhanced because I don't get to watch horror movies very often these days, but I think it was very unique and it subverted the horror genre and the superhero genre very very well in that it it mashed the two together and it had some great elements from both. What were your highlights? Gore. Oh, there was some amazing gore. So there's a there's a particular scene. Um, you can watch most of it over on our YouTube channel. It's called the uh, the wreck it clip, where uh, where the kid picks up his uncle's pickup truck and drops it down on its front. Uh, the clip cuts off right before um, what happens, uh, and it's uh, um, well. I, I put in my social media reaction to the movie that it was jaw-droppingly good, and that is a uh, a hint as to what happens. But this, there's definitely a uh, a round of applause required for the special effects artists who worked on this movie because the uh, the practical effects and the the gore stuff was just um, it was on another level. Put it that way. Any any low lights or any bits you weren't so keen on? Uh, there was a couple of moments. I mean, to be to be fair and to be. Uh, you know, to try and be logical about it. This isn't, you know, it's not a groundbreaking horror movie in that respect. It's it's unique in that it does look at the superhero origin story and, and give you a bit of a what if. So if you're, you know, if you like an Elseworlds comic book or if you like a what if scenario in a comic, then this is great for you. But if you are a, you know, if you're a hardcore horror junkie that is bored with the kind of formulaic horror movies that you get these days the the annabelles and the nuns and the the saw movies then this isn't this probably isn't going to float your boat massively because it still has those those certain steps to it that you would expect from a horror movie and there's a particular moment whereby you learn that uh that brandon briar played by jackson a dunn has has a weakness similar to to clark kent having a weakness as a superman and that key moment towards the end of the movie, just when you think that all hope is lost, there's a really, really contrived moment where Elizabeth Banks's character suddenly realizes that actually she could stop the kid, um, and it just happens in the most contrived manner that it possibly could, and that was that was a little bit annoying because it didn't make too many obvious choices, and even some of the scares that you think were obvious would come from slightly uh, subverted places. So there's a scene early in the movie where. Um, Brandon is starting to embrace his his dark side and his powers and he starts stalking a girl from his school and he turns up in her room and you see a moment where she uh, so her laptop suddenly starts playing music and she shuts it and then the music starts again when she's turned her back because he's reopened the laptop and you don't see him until the curtains flutter in the wind and he's slightly you know he's hiding behind the curtains and it builds up that moment of tension where she's walking towards the curtains and you think the jump is going to come from him jumping out at her and actually the jump is where her mum bursts through the bedroom door behind her to see what's wrong. And it will do things like that where it will give you a scare from a not an obvious place in where you think an obvious scare is going to come from. So to see it have a more contrived moment towards the end was a little bit frustrating. 
And what would you give this film overall? What's your scores on the doors? Oh, I haven't finished writing my review yet, but um, it's probably going to get an 8 out of 10 from me. There was definitely some uh, some giddiness on leaving the cinema because it was quite good fun, and I definitely felt slightly menaced all the way home afterwards. <laughs> Something else that's really interesting is uh, is the way they play the score in this movie. So a lot of us walked out wondering how there hadn't been some kind of lawsuit against Sony from Warner Brothers for how close this gets to Superman. But you remember the music from Man of Steel, that really iconic sort of Hans Zimmer piano piece that's like do 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 do. Uh, this quite often will do the first couple of piano keys and maybe slightly switch up the key of it but when it's leaning in towards more of its superhero stuff when you're trying to look at the kid and think oh you know what actually he does have a heart and he doesn't want to be bad or you're seeing him with his mum it'll quite often do the do do and you just think hello mate you're about to get like you're gonna get some sort of superman type music here it's it's very it is very very clever in that respect and and fair play to the screenwriters for for doing something that really takes a story that you think you know very well and making it be something else. I'm sure they will have consulted their lawyers heavily before. I would sincerely hope so. My full review is going to be coming out on the website this week. I'm seeing it again Monday night. Uh, Although, to be fair, if I'm releasing this podcast on Monday, then I should probably be saying I'm seeing it again tonight. Uh, Cineworld is having unlimited screenings on Monday the 10th of June, which you can go and see before the film is released um, on general release on June the 19th. I really, really, really highly recommend that you go check this out. If you are a comic book fan that doesn't often go and see horror movies, this isn't a chance to explore something a little bit different. Likewise, if you're a horror movie fan that doesn't often see comic book movies, it is, it, it again, it's a chance to see something that is just a little bit different than what you see normally, but it's, it's so, so well worth a watch. And I cannot thank Think Jam uh, PR and Sony enough for inviting us down to the uh, to their London office to be able to watch it early. I was I was very 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 thankful of that one because it's a movie I've been desperate to watch. Maybe one day we'll make you watch it. Stranger things have happened. I won't hold my breath. So that is all for this week, Super Friends. We have come to the end of another episode of our podcast. Thank you for listening as always. Like we keep saying every week, if there's something that you want us to read, something that you want us to watch, something that you want us to talk about, please do not hesitate to get in touch at Get Your Comic On on Twitter and Instagram. And you can also find us on Facebook. Uh, if you want to have a little natter with either myself or Martin, I'm on Twitter at Neil Vag, same on Instagram. And Martin is the wonderful at Boy Wonder 89. Thanks for coming, Martin. Always a pleasure. <laughs> Until next time, thank you for listening and bye bye. Bye.